once you become a father, you just can't, you can't really think the same way because like all, everything in your life and all your motives is all about protecting the interests of your children. And uh, you know, that comes above everything else. If a lot of men don't have that, I wouldn't say burden, but that obligation, then then they don't going to feel the same obligation to maybe conserve what, the, what we have and pass it on to the, young, the next generation. And, and instead, you know, the kind of bug man worldview of just like being obsessed with Marvel films and, and staying as a child for and like seriously discussing what happens in like the Avengers or you know Wakanda or whatever. It's just like this is this is childish stuff. Like I would say, it's a great reason to have kids. Is that you, I can actually go along to Marvel superhero films and you know otherwise I just people just presume I'm like a pedo or something. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro. With me is the politically ambiguous Ricky Allpike. Yeah, that's true. I- I like to keep them guessing. I, I like to say, I like to be like, uh, you know, a pretty lady across the, in the bar. I'll just say, oh, I never kiss and tell, you know? And uh, Am I a lady? Am I a man? <laughs> well, that's a more modern question. Yes. Um, and I think I know the answer. But uh, to actually, that does come up to, in, in today's uh, interview with Ed West, a uh, fantastic uh, gentleman from the UK. Everyone should read his book, Tory Boy. Uh, you're going to love this one. Ed West is former deputy editor of Unheard, a journalist, essayist, author, and substacker. He began his career in men's magazines and then transitioned into less racy journalism. He's written for the Daily Telegraph and The Spectator and has authored books on a diverse array of topics from the art of seduction to British history. His most recent book is called Tory Boy, Memoirs of the Last Conservative. Ed, welcome to the new flesh. Hello, it's a pleasure. Ed, I know you look... We're not going to spend too much time on this, but I know you started your career in a very different kind of journalism, uh, which contrasts sharply with your current output. So I have a question that perhaps only you can answer because it blends a couple of worlds. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the numbers suggest that progressivism is being led in, a, in great part by young women. Um, so why is it that in the case of, say, Meghan Markle and AOC in the US, that despite their truly awful, dehumanizing and pompous ideas that I find them so incredibly hot, the more... They sort of lash me for being white and male. The hotter they become, and they're clearly crazy as well, which only adds to it. What's, go- what's going on here, Ed? Interesting point. Um, well, didn't Larry David say that when in an episode of Curb Enthusiasm where there's a, a Palestinian woman yes. who wants Israel destroyed? Yes, it is. The sexiest thing imaginable. Yeah, I suppose, that, I mean, you know, there's, there's nothing hotter than evil, is there, really? And, and you know, their idea is basically evil and it's why Russians are very, you know, the Russian accent is very sexy because we know it's basically, you know, they've been the baddies for the last, and now they're the baddies again, and 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 bet the accents become hotter as well. Just basic science. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Follow the science. Uh, while we're on the topic of Harry and Meghan, I've found myself increasingly obsessed with their trials and tribulations. Any time there's news from these two worksters, I just I can't help but clicking. Are, are people in the UK as obsessed as I am? Uh, yeah, they're pretty. Um, they're pretty loathed. I mean, to be honest, Harry and uh, I think Meghan on the latest polls, Meghan's still slightly more popular than Prince Andrew, but she's, I mean, not much. And, and he's like minus sixty, she's minus forty. I just find there there is something about them that really, really grates, isn't it? It's the kind of mixture of you know, like privilege and the kind of lack of awareness of the privilege and. I suppose the Oprah thing was, you know, complaining about, so her, her making, you know, a big deal because like one of his elderly relatives made some comment about, you know, what her child might look like. It's like, if your kid's like, okay, if you're incredibly sensitive, that might, Ari, it's not like the biggest 
put down or insult there is in the world. Um, you know, he's Prince Harry's had in you know, like really horrible life in many ways. So I mean, he's very he's a very pitiful character. Um, but it's just the kind of mixture of wallowing and you know stuff like oh you know we had to spend time in lockdown, but yeah, but you were in like a massive house in California, <laughs> you know, surrounded uh, yeah. and. The idea that it's kind of so like the, the modern elites, the reason why everyone hates him, because they have a kind of mixture of old fashioned privilege, you know, wealth and, un, you know, unspeakable wealth, but without the kind of sense of duty that the old aristocracy had, you know, like if you look, go back to the first war, 21% of old Etonians in each in that, that year were killed in the first war, massive levels of, of death, the aristocracy for all their faults at the time. They really did make all the sacrifices everyone else did. They, they, it was just expected that was the thing you did. There was no getting out of it. They didn't go off and, you know, have that kind of. So even like Charles, his generation have that kind of sense of oh, doing, you know, doing what you have to do for the country. And the Queen epitomised that. And Harry's just sort of, he just doesn't have any of that. It's, it's just it's awful to have a ruling class without any kind of sense of obligation. But he did enlist, and I feel like he, I feel like he he had the makings of something, and then. This his relationship with Megan. I think maybe it's so painful because it resembles that friend we've all got, who's going out with yeah. a, with a chick, and he's totally pussy whipped every second of his life. It's so tough to watch. I did. Um, I was. I mean, I obviously I couldn't write this. I did think maybe when he came back for Prince Philip's funeral, the the SAS could kind of kidnap him as a snatch squad and sort of deprogram him. You know, <laughs> yeah. I reckon a couple of years he'll be over it. I mean, that, that might break some international conventions i don't know but you know, i'm no legal expert on that matter but i thought that that would be the kind of thing to you know you see in the crown even though the crown is obviously evil american anti-british propaganda um tommy lascelles in the first episode you know series like where is he now you know when he told me obviously it was very kind of cruel system they had but you know she the queen's sister falls in love with this guy he's not suitable and you know maybe he would have been should have got married but you know he just said all right we'll send him off to like the congo for two years I know it was Belgium, wasn't it? It was somewhere far away. And, um, you know, after two years, you still love him, then you can get married. So that seems like kind of like more sensible advice. But it's all gone. It's all gone. So, uh, you know, it's going to be more, and it's just going to be a constant kind of grinding, uh, kind of running sore in the family now. He's got his book out, which just sounds incredibly self-pitying. I mean, again, it's self-pitying, but he's had a horrible life. His, you know, his mother was basically driven to her death by scummy tabloid journalists it all happens you know your parents divorce in front of the whole world it must be awful but i mean it's just and his dad said some pretty mad stuff like he's that. had some and, and I, I guess yeah. the army had like a very it had to kind of provide that brotherhood and comradeship that he really that was really quite a good for him i guess um and it's a shame i suppose they couldn't let him fight in the front line in afghanistan because well they restricted how much he could fight wasn't it because they thought if he got killed by the taliban that'd be too but again that's kind of that's sort of what the role of the aristocracy is. It's kind of military leaders. And if you take that away from them, then they sort of become these kind of pathetic parodies. It's sad. So have I depressed everyone already? I tend no, to do this. No, 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 no. It's, it's good. They're, they're, look, they're, it's their fault. Yeah. They're, they're the ones who are, the, who, are, who are bumming us all out. Like, I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> what do you think? So um, is Australia, if, if Australia is still going to keep the monarchy after the... Because, uh, I mean, maybe... Pre- Maybe Harry could could go and become like King of Australia instead, so that we'd have separate branches of the Windsor family and we'd have a separate monarchy, but you can have Harry. 
How about that? <laughs> that is so insulting, Ed. Why would you give up? Is he the best you can do? I mean, it's Andrew, but I mean, I'm not sure you'd want him either. <laughs> he seems fun, though. <laughs> John, I, I, th- I think you'd love Meghan Markle to come down under. You would. I've already stated, I, 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 we were arguing about this before. Uh, we'll get on your book in a second, Ed, I promise. But, 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 the, but it, I was just talking about how unfortunate it is that yeah, I find Megan so hot. I, I don't, and, and I know all of the bad stuff and I don't care. You know, <laughs> yeah. So it's a shame. Uh, in your book, Tory Boy, you talk about attending social situations over the years in which people, uh, without even thinking, lay into the Conservative Party and casually denigrate any and all Conservative thought and figures presumably without any fear of offending or upsetting anyone. Can you tell us about this experience? You know, how long has that, that been going on for? Oh, I mean, that's basically, I mean, I've only, I suppose I only started noticing it in my late twenties, but um, yeah, that's still the norm. I mean, it happens a bit less now and that more people, I suppose, more people really know about my politics now. Not, I'm not famous or anything, but I suppose it's got to a stage where, Enough people know that I'm like the weirdo in the area. But I mean, I live in a uh, in an area of London, which is probably very like one of the most liberal. You know, it had like eighty percent Remain votes. It was that, which is the kind of standard measure. EU flags on the around. Yeah, yeah, or? loads of EU flags. Oh yeah, wow. there was there's. I mean, there was one in my street uh, that neighbours put up. Um, yeah, it's very much that kind of scene. So it's kind of assumed. The problem is it's kind of become a bit harder for me to sort of defend. I mean, even I now, like, the, the government's so hopeless that I can't really, like, defend them anymore. So I don't even bother to sort of contradict anyone. I mean, what can you say? They're just they're hopeless. Have you, have, you ever thought of, have you ever thought of moving maybe to Hungary or...? Hungary? Uh, well, I went to, I've been to Hungary a couple of times. So uh, to say it's a very nice place. Um, the language... I mean, like Hungary and Poland are like the last two really sort of conservative places in Europe. Uh, and, you know, neither neither languages. I mean, we're not exactly known for picking up languages that easily. I mean, like French and German are hard enough, but Hungarian is just off the scale difficult. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's more... I mean, I get, I'm 44 now, so like emigration is a bit of a... A big move. Gets a bit less likely, doesn't it? It's a bit hard. It's more of a younger thing. I mean, I know that younger people are much talking about immigration, immigration a lot. But I mean, the problem is like the, the English-speaking countries, which are kind of the obvious choices, have a lot of the same problems. You know, like housing costs. Um, you know, the pol- political, the kind of like runaway progressive dominance is is found pretty much everywhere, just in kind of different guises. I mean, Canada seems even worse than us. So I mean, that's you know not a prospect. But, um, Melbourne's pretty I bad. suppose Australia, but I think it's, you know, Australia housing is really expensive as well in, in Sydney and Melbourne, isn't it? So, yeah, I mean, that is. is the main the main driver. And I mean, that's the main driver of bad quality of life. And it's also the main big driver of, I think, the political extremism amongst the kind of younger people. I mean, why why wouldn't you be a commie? Why wouldn't you listen to AOC if you can't ever afford to own your own house? Mm. Plus the fact that she's, you know, attractive as well. So <laughs> can't, you can't fight that. Mm. Yes. No, I can't. But uh, look, what, what's your uh, before we move on? What, what's your response to moderates and centre-left people who complain to you about the lunacy of the modern far left? Because in the old sort of west-wing days of you know uh, the early noughts and whatever, wouldn't these moderates have been the people who sort of gleefully mocked you and all you hold dear? And now they're turning around saying, "Oh, geez, this is terrible!" Like you know, what do you mean? What mean uh, you know they've got to be in my daughter's locker room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
Well, I mean, that's that's the main debate, isn't it? That's a uh, you know, where, that's the the debate between you know, lib- liberalism is basically. I think everyone's agreed it's in decline. Then it's dying, but it's you know, what is standardly called liberalism is basically kind of dead in the water. Um, not dead in the water, but it's in decline. And um, the post liberals say, well, this is a natural, inevitable re- response result of the kind of. 60s revolution this is just it taken into its later stages isn't it while liberals would say oh this is an aberration of liberalism and i'm obviously i tend to think it's it's like a you know you start a social revolution this is what you're going to get isn't it it's like 1789 inevitably follows with 1792 because where else do you take the revolution so i mean i'm not particularly i mean as conservatives we always have to think like oh i have to stand with jk rowling and all the kind of other kind of center-left feminists but it's like well, they were kind of on board with everything until it turned against them. It's always like, you know, revolutionaries who turn up and about to get beheaded. It's like, oh, wow, the guillotine. <laughs> They're doing me now. I never thought that would happen. And, you know, that's kind of, well, you did kind of cause that. I mean, I like mm-hmm. this idea that in like, in, in sort of, you know, as Danton's about to be executed by the other revolutionaries of France, all the kind of conservative exiles are sort of wearing T-shirts saying, oh, I stand with Danton. Yeah, what about free speech? It's like, no, this is like, this is exactly what he expects. This is what's going to happen. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, the, the whole trans thing is kind of interesting because it's like a generational conflict. You see, I mean, I'm, I assume it's the same in, you know, Australia's big cities that you get sort of middle-aged, um, sort of liberal mothers arguing with their teenage daughters who, who are kind of totally on board the trans thing. And the mums say, well, in our day, we were against categorization. This is against everything we stood for. And it's true that, you know, the kind of trans ideology, whatever you want to call it, is, is a kind of... It's in one way the complete extension of sort of standard feminist thinking, and another way it's a complete contradiction of it. It's a, the anti-feminist. It's like you know, if you're gender atypical, you there must you must be in the wrong body. Um, or if I'm trans, I'm I'm always a bombshell. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm trans, yeah, yeah, stunning but, and brave. but yeah, but well, stunning and brave, but it's always blonde, big. Oh yeah, yeah, they're kind big of like bosomed, big parody, yeah. Yeah, and it's like I'm a go- oh, that guy, oh, that that, that uh, trans woman, uh, Dylan, for who went to the White House recently. Um, anyway, I can't I remember which one this. I know it's, it's they they all look like complete parodies of women. It's almost as if it's the kind of idea of a woman thought up by a man who watches lots of porn. But I mean, that would be <laughs> an outrageous thing to think. Um, yeah, I just think this is it's it's. It's hard, to, like it's hard to argue against the kind of basic, uh, you know, like the arguments of trans, the trans movement without basically upsetting like standards, um, like standard feminism, which was the basic basis of it. You know, the idea is like, if there aren't significant psychological average differences between the sexes, then you know what is, what can you argue against exactly? Like my my basic thing is that yeah, men and women are 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 separate biological entities to do the chromosomes and the chromosomes in every part of your body. And you can't actually change that, although we can still be compassionate to people who want to live as the opposite sex. But men and women also have basically different average like personalities, like the personality traits, different things. And, you know, the biology does not stop above the neck, which was a kind of standard idea that kind of set the ground for this, you know, that, you know, you can be, you know, the, the reason that men and women end up in different social settings or in different jobs or doing different things is because of like social pressure rather than the obvious fact that they tend to have different preferences and you know different levels of certain personality traits so i think it's um i I think it's it's hard to right it's hard to argue against kind of extremism of the movement 
without undermining the whole kind of progressive liberal worldview to start with, which is what I want, basically. That's why I do want to undermine it, because I think it's basically wrong. Well, since we're going to be talking about conservative conservatism quite a quite a bit, uh, would you mind giving us some of the key features of conservatism as you see it? Um, I think conservatism, based to start with, it's it's anti-utopian. Um, we, you know, you can't create perfect societies. You can't. Human beings are basically fallen creatures. You know, we come down on the side of Hobbes against Rousseau that. Humans, are, we're not basically bad, but humans are kind of self-interested and often weak. Um, we, we believe in institutions, and those should be you know, those institutions will basically make civil society. Um, and then they're neutral institutions that aren't basically run by the state, which is where we disagree with progressives. And they're, they're institutions that have a purpose for themselves, which is not to do with politics. Um, you know, conservatism in the Western. Western conservative, anyway, is definitely is tied up with the nuclear family, which is another key issue. Liberalism is is a, is a you know the philosophy of the individual, which is where kind of conservatives disagree with kind of classical liberals who want to, you know, who are very focused on individual rights. I mean, the conservatives we don't really believe in we don't believe in the individual rights in the sense that everyone is connected to everyone else and how you behave affects other people. So there are always going to be has to be restraints on the individual, and that comes out in things like censorship. Um, and also, you know, for example, the assisted suicide debate, which is becoming much more pronounced, which is based on the liberal premise that you know, it's up to you to, to decide, which uh, conservatives disagree with. Um, can, you know, another thing is conservatives believe they believe in change, obviously, but they believe gradual change is always better to um, dramatic change. Any kind of drastic change is, is um, going to be bad. I suppose the other one, I suppose, like... By- um, we are sort of prisoners of biology, which would be another one. You know, human beings, you know, in the 18th century, we'd be, they used to talk about diversity in a completely different sense now. I mean, diversity of talents and um, personalities and abilities, and, and they, di- they differ uh, between individuals. So any kind of society, any attempt to make equality a sort of central goal is going to fail because we just, you know, we have different abilities. I suppose there are loads of other ones, but... Well, I, I feel like a lot of people don't know what conservatism is, and they see conservatives just as racist Christians. Uh, is is that what progressives really believe, or are they just using that as a political weapon? I don't know. To be honest, there is. Um, I mean, there is quite a lot of evidence showing that um, educated people on the left have a less um, they have less of an understanding of what their opponents believe than vice versa. But who are so educated conservatives have a better idea of what liberals think than, than the other way around. Um, I suppose then that's mainly because if you're a liberal, you can, you can easily live, you are a majority amongst educated circles. So you could spend your entire life only li- meeting other liberals. Uh, and you will probably meet conservatives, but they just keep themselves quiet. Um, well, if you're a conservative in an urban area and amongst educated in the universities, and you're, you're just going to be surrounded by liberals. So you're going to know their worldview much better. Uh, yes, I think there is uh, like a certain amount of, um, yeah, I think there is a bit of a misconception. The thing is, like, the Republican Party, you know, is kind of a bit insane. A lot of it is obviously pretty mad. Um, I just think, from an English point of view, the, you know, the Democrats are also pretty insane. It's just their kind of insanity is kind of considered a bit more, um, you know, like high status, a bit more prestigious. So it's not sort of laughed at. Um, while you know the republic the republicans are easy to laugh at because especially in the british and i suppose probably the australian point of view as well is that they're they're kind of similar enough to us that it's you know not distasteful to mock them and laugh at them being country folk from america but they are kind of um they are 
strange enough that they sort of seem weird. You know, it's a very, it's a, it's a very strange, it's a much more religious country, for example. You know, their obsession with guns, I find, is a bit weird. Um, you know, I can see the arguments is more complex than people make out, but it's like, do you really need to be able to buy all those guns all the time? Do you really need to have like 200 million guns in that country? Like to me, it just seems kind of, you know, Australia and Britain both had a similar experience where we had the massacre in each country. And after that, we really restricted gun ownership. And that, to me, that seems like obviously more sensible. But, you know, Amer- America is just, you know, people forget. It's also America is like a, such a different country to so for, it's so different to Britain. It's so different to European countries. And we take it as that basically it should be the same as us. But, you know, it's a massive country. It's, it's, you know, it's like a very rich country with aspects of the third world inside it. And it's not comparable with small kind of very urbanized Western European countries. We've got much more in common with like the French and the Dutch and the Germans in our politics. But, you know, no one's really interested in the policy, the, what goes on in those countries in Britain. There's virtually no coverage of it, even though like France is literally 25 miles away, 22 miles away. I mean, it's weird. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there is, so, yeah, there is that conception of sort of, you know, evangelical Christians and gun nuts and the Ku Klux Klan and all that stuff. I mean, another thing is that, you know, America on most racial issues is way more progressive than almost anywhere in Europe. I mean, maybe a couple of Scandinavian countries, but even they are much, you know, someone like Denmark is, is by any measure far more, restricted and, and um you know their immigration policy is way more right-wing than anything the americans would tolerate the french by any standard are much more racist than the americans are like you can ask them any question and, and they will answer and they're kind of much more openly about it and, but americans have this idea that you know there is like there is a uniquely racist country with a uniquely like colonial brutal history and that's just not true it's not even that bad from the standards of most of the world is it, do you think that that's born out of their American uh, uh, exceptionalism? This, so they're, they're, because they've got this idea that, you know, that they've got, that they are particularly exceptional, that even their racism is the worst racism, like worse yeah, it, than it, other parts of the country, other parts of the world that are clearly like where people are macheting each other every day, like worse than that. It's, I mean, America was, was founded by religious maniacs from East Anglia. I mean, that, and that has this huge bearing on their culture ever since. You know, very, very religious people with a very strong ideal of what their country is going to be. It's kind of going to be this new, this new Jerusalem, this new England. Um, and that kind of moralizing aspect goes right through their history. And, you know, it's, it, was there in, it was there in the Civil War. It was there now. And, and for that reason, you know, the America has to be this kind of most moral states in the world and also you know like so if you look at any if you look at the, even the dna studies of almost any population on the earth so you know there were people before the celts arrived in britain there were people living there and the dna studies show really very trace elements of um pre-celtic people in british dna because the same thing happened there as happened almost anywhere in the world is that the newcomers come along and just completely wiped out the and kept a few women as slaves White supremacy. Basically killed the rest of the population. I mean, that is what happened, uh, that is what happened uh, across Asia, across Europe, across Africa. With, um, and even indige- you know, native populations, Europeans kept discovered, had also wiped out previous indigenous populations. And even if you look at the European colonies, what the Spanish and, and the Portuguese did in their colonies was much more brutal than what the Anglo-Americans did. So they've got this you know, idea that America must be like this uniquely bad place. And it's also kind of narcissism, isn't it? It's like we have to be the worst because, you know, everything's about us. We're the main character, which they are the main character. But, but maybe they are the main character. But maybe, maybe to put a bow on it, uh, you know, and I know this is controversial, but the entire world stopped because a guy 
was yeah tragically killed by the police in minnesota um like we had um protests everywhere in places where the cops don't have guns even same people saying don't shoot us yeah. <laughs> or get you yeah, know yeah, like we had exactly the same thing all, all over london yeah don't shoot signs you know will i be next say you know the sign saying will i be next say no obviously not because <laughs> you know the number of shootings by the police cops like, really have to have it in for you if you were next yeah like, they i mean would, it would be unbelievably to... lucky it'll be like you know elvis landing a plane on your head kind of levels of bad luck it just you know, like, it's it's possible, man. It's yeah. It's I mean, out, it's, it's terrible. The I mean, truth is out there. The whole, you know, the June 2020 was so bizarre, and I really felt like I was just completely going mental the whole time. Especially, you know, people who have been isolated and say, "Oh, I can't," you know, I haven't seen my, you know, I haven't seen my mum and dad for six months. I can't go to any funeral site. And they're saying, saying "Oh, we're going to go down to protest about with hundred thousand other people in the centre of town." I mean, as it turned out, it didn't transmit outdoors, but no one at the time knew that. So you can actually risk that because of a guy, a criminal who got shot. It's very, you know, no one was shot. A criminal got killed 5,000 miles away in a country you have no power to influence whatsoever. And in a really complex, which you know nothing about the policing situation there. It's incredibly complicated. You know nothing about the actual statistics involved. And it's just like, you're going to risk everything because of that. It's just completely mad. And, and, and if you mentioned his criminal history, like, like if you mentioned, there were people who mentioned his criminal history at the time, like radio people and stuff. They were, those people were, in, in like the Schwarzenegger movie, erased. L- loads of people were sacked in England. There was actually loads of sa- about the, About the week, about four or five people working in radio. I mean, another reason why I think podcasts... Um, are doing so well is because you know radio. If you radio has these kind of rules, like some someone in some obscure radio station in Britain mentioned. Oh, by the way, I do think it's inappropriate. George George was a criminal. It's very sad, but you know, and then sacked. I mean, there was a police officer who was making jokes about it in a WhatsApp group in Britain. Got four months in jail this year. Literally four <laughs> wow. months in jail for making WhatsApp jokes, and that, they don't print the actual jokes because you know they're too insensitive. Thing. I mean, they obviously like a, they were obviously racist. They obviously poor taste um but there were jokes in the whatsapp group he went to jail for four months and you know the british like legal system is not very strict i mean i noticed at the time this had happened a week after two guys who put a, a complete stranger in, in intensive care for no reason would get less off without any jail at all i mean so you know they really throw the book at you about these kind of like taboo issues it's very strange well we, we wanted to ask you a little bit about immigration um, and, and I think John, you, you you read a statistic that that a million immigrants have come illegally. Well, to I don't know where I've got I don't know where I've gotten that from. Like, look, maybe there's we'll a million get... this year. Really? Is, does that, how does that break down? There are lots of different. Some of it's visas, some of it's students. Um, uh, people using students, and the student thing is a bit of a scam because um, you know loads of people are obviously using students just to, as a way of immigration, and, and a lot of them are. are um, on various sort of poor quality courses where people obviously aren't actually doing it. Um, family reunion, all kinds of things. And there was also, you know, 40,000 people have crossed the channel illegally in the year, which is just astonishing. Um, and we just seem incapable of, of, t- of stopping them, mm. which is just like completely bizarre. So, the, I mean, the government is really kind of breaking down this one. It seems unable to stop this kind of, this issue. And, you know, 2% of the male population of Albania have crossed the channel this year, which is just an astonishing figure. It's an indictment of Albania. Albania. If I was in the Albanian government, I'd be embarrassed. <laughs> well, the Albanian government actually, you know, criticised uh, the British government for, you know, complaining about it. 
as if like what's wrong you don't like you, you don't like our, our, our man was basically what's saying that you know you're anti-albanian so we're like mm, okay like we have no we have no idea what these guys are up to that they just seem that they're obviously they're, i mean they're by definition they're crossing using traffic traffickers albania is not in any kind of state of civil war albania is applying for the eu um and they're coming from france yes they're coming across france yeah mm. and then they come to the channel and they uh and the reason they come is because, um, so Germany, the vast, I mean, the majority of Albanians who apply for asylum in Germany refused and sent back. Um, the overwhelming majority in France, the French just say, no, you're not coming. While the overwhelming majority in Britain are allowed to stay. Often it's to do with stuff like, oh, you know, there are like feuds back home and I'd be in real trouble. It's like, well, yeah, you probably would, but it's not really, I mean, the way it's framed is like this is like the kinder transport coming. It's like it's obviously not. They're not escaping genocide. They're not escaping war. They, you know, they are they are economic migrants. They are wanting to make their their life better, which I can't blame them for. But I mean, in doing so, they are completely, un, you know, firstly undermining the whole idea of the border, and secondly, they are just going to you know make our life just slightly worse. And that just doesn't seem anyone is capable of kind of dealing with it. Yeah, well, there seems like apart from some elite areas like London. There is support for significantly tackling immigration, yet it seems completely uh, insurmountable for the Tories to accomplish this. Why is that? Um, that's an interesting point. It's, it's overwhelmingly popular, yes. Uh, one, I think, well, there are lots of legal hurdles. So, the, the, I mean, the government probably might have to overturn the um, UN Convention on, on Refugees from the 50s, which I think they're going to have to anyway because it was, it's completely out of date. Uh, and they tried this Rwanda thing, which is sort of challenged by lawyers. So that they, you know, they're basically dealing with sort of lawyers you know, trying to stop every single thing along the way. Um, and they don't really have the energy or maybe the will to just take it to, to whatever, you know. They basically, they have to win this. Otherwise, they are not a government. They are not, they are not you know, running the thing. It's almost like... The, conflict with the sort of striking miners in the 70s where the Tory party said you know who runs Britain the miners or us and they held an election and basically the the public thought that you know you're not strong enough to take on the miners who control the energy supply so we're going to vote vote you out you know like if you cannot stop lawyers undermining the rule of law and your immigration system then you're not a government worth doing it so you know they I mean, they basically, they want to do what Australia did, which is kind of offshore it and the offshore idea of detention. deterring people. You know, that kind of advert the Australians had, you're not making Australia at home. They want, they just don't have the nerve to do that because they know it's going to upset kind of journalists on Twitter, which I just think is ridiculous. Like, to hell with them. Like, they don't matter. They're not going to vote Tory anyway. Who cares what they think? You know, once you put the deterrent in place, it's going to stop. And people aren't going to come here if they know they're not going to be allowed to stay in England. I mean, that is the main thing. It's basically incentives. I mean, we also we don't have ID cards as well, so you can basically work in the the British kind of underground economy. While in in continental Europe, it's very hard to get kind of basic basic services without an ID card. And if you're an illegal, like the French, just deport you; they don't care. Um, I mean, a lot of it is due to kind of Anglo norms about you know rule of law. While so other countries in Europe just oh, I don't care. Like, sure, he's allowed to come here under the Refugee Convention 951, but we're still kicking him out. So, but but if you're coming from France, isn't that is that isn't that um, Im- immediate disqualification? Isn't it like because France is a it's a safe country? A safe country, I know. Yeah, I mean, I've been to France and I never really felt like a and I wanted to escape there. Um, in theory, yes. I mean, again, yeah. In theory, obviously. I mean, I suppose the, the counterpoint is that okay, the the immigration rules make it very 
So if you want to claim asylum, if you are, you know, escaping genocide or whatever, you can't just turn up at a British embassy. Um, we couldn't make the rule like that because it would be even more chaotic. So the only way you can do that is to actually cross France. And obviously, because of Britain geography, the only way to get to Britain is via France. Um, so they would say, well, that's the only way a legitimate refugee could actually do it is going by France, which I suppose is, you know, fair enough argument. But, I mean, just the basic problem is that you cannot um, have a system... You know, if you allow most people to come here illegally and just be allowed to live here, we are going to be unbelievably overwhelmed with people, which we already are. You know, it's gone up from a few hundred a year to 40,000 already this year. You know, there's a really interesting book uh, by Paul Collier's Exodus. It came out 2013. So he's an econ economist. Um, and he just looks at kind of migration flows in the modern world. And he basically explains that the potential numbers now because of technology because of money and because of once you have a settled community in another country migration is obviously path dependent so it hugely increases the more people we have the more people will come so london is very cosmopolitan has a very large albanian population for example as here has large populations from you know dozens of different countries it's very very easy now for someone from pretty much any country in the world to, to come to britain and stay there and work you know, we have this idea that it's like the 1890s. It's still sort of paddle steamers across the Atlantic, wherever. It's, it's very easy to do it now. Um, and the numbers who would come are absolutely gigantic. Um, you know, he says the example, we have a test case example, which is northern Cyprus, which is a country of kind of like middling income. Um, but northern Cypriots, they're Turkish, but they're allowed to come and live in Britain because it was a former colony. And he points out that, you know, a majority of northern Cypriots since the 70s are now living in Britain. The, literally, the majority of the country has moved to Britain. And in the meantime, the majority of people now living in northern Cyprus are from mainland Turkey, who are, again, which is an even poorer state. So people would just naturally move. If we allowed open borders to Albania, for example, the numbers coming would be absolutely enormous. And even though Albania is quite a small country. But, you know, na you know uh, almost neighbouring Romania had, they reckon, one, about one million, I think one million people were living here from Romania. And you, I mean, I've been to Romania, and a lot of it is very, very deserted. Like they've lost huge, they've lost half their medical staff to immigration to Western Europe. I mean, it's been quite devastating to them. But you know, the numbers potentially involved are just gigantic. So you have to, at some point, just say, do the Australian thing, or do the po do, you know, po Poland has had zero illegal immigrants in the last year because they they've just said, we're just as soon as you come here, we're kicking you out. Um, you know, Poland historically has like the weakest border in the whole of Europe. They're the most vulnerable country to invasion, you know, and Britain is the most secure country because of our sea. And yet we have 40,000 people coming illegally, Poland has zero. It's a very strange situation. Mm. Well, how can, how can anyone still advocate for, for open borders when, when, when it's so obvious that if you have a huge influx of, of people, it, it just puts pressure on all sorts of services like, you know, housing or health or, you know, more people competing for jobs. I mean, how, how does anyone argue for open borders? Um, I think I think the, you know the economic arguments are pretty mixedly fair. You can uh, up to a certain point the population increasing doesn't make people you know people poorer. You can have densely populated countries that are very rich. Uh, and I suppose that you know the argument the open borders argument is basically there are two prongs. There's the moral one, which is that we have as much obligation to everyone in the world as you know no, just because someone's a countryman or he's from the same ethnic group or same color. There's no reason why they should be favoured over anyone. Um, uh, you know, I can see the logic of it. I think it's it's unworkable in reality because it ignores that human beings are basically, um, you know, human beings are parochial. They have their own particular loyalties and attachments. I mean, that's another aspect of conservatism I should have mentioned. 
Um, you know, human beings are not universal. It would be impossible for a, it would be impossible for our species to be universal by definition. But then there is the economic argument. Was okay if you have you know free movement in theory does uh, imp- in, definitely it does you know overall increase GDP per capita because uh, you just have like a better allocation of skills. But when you have um, free movement from poor countries and lower skilled people who are prepared to take a lower wage, I mean I think it definitely does reduce wages for people in like the service industries, which I think has just been completely denied by all sort of, you know the establishment. Most economists say, oh, no, it doesn't because people retrain and say, I think that's obviously true. If you have loads of plumbers coming over and you're a plumber, you're obviously that's going to affect how much you, you can earn. And I think that happened with the A8 influx in 2004. So you had, you know, like a million Poles came, came here. Mostly very hard workers were prepared to work for much lower wages than, you know, a British person doing a similar job. And that obviously did decrease wages. And that is one, you know, the, the thing that caused Brexit was the kind of great, discontent amongst people that their wages are basically stayed the same for 10 years and uh, the establishment's answer was oh we just have more immigration it's like that's the problem isn't it you know and the housing has gone up you know housing's gone up 50 percent in 10 years in britain the housing situation is catastrophic uh, and obviously again this is like oh well it's kind of downplaying the role of immigration well, actually immigration has increased house prices by about 21 percent since the 90s that's a huge difference. You know, if you, if the, the price of houses is about the relationship between the, you know, the stock of houses and the number of people there, isn't it? So if you have more people, and sure, you can build more, but it's quite hard to, to build stuff, you know. We all have kind of the problem with nimbyism. So, you know, these things are just very, very difficult. I mean, my own take was, you know, the obvious thing was like, fine, just have free movement between rich countries. And we don't even have to make it bilateral. We can just say, okay, the countries which are list, which you go through fast track passport in when you come to like um, an airport in Britain, there are like basically a dozen countries plus the EU where you can just fast track access. And those are countries where basically median income is above a certain level and political development is above a certain level. And if you have free movement between those kind of countries, it doesn't really make much difference because most of the free movement is between like very managerial elites kind of people. There's not like a race to the bottom. So that's kind of less problem. So if you just made that, that would be the easiest solution, in my opinion, but uh, which I think would be popular. But I don't know. Instead, we've got you know record numbers, a million, a million a year, so which is kind of mad. Well, somewhat related. Can you tell us what it was like as a conservative voter and a Brexiteer during the Brexit years? Did you lose friends? Uh, not really. No. I mean, I was never. I mean, I was never you were like out huge. already. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was like Brexiteer, but I kind of, I was very, I. Yeah, as it happened, I was already starting to lose faith because I kind of worked for it. I worked for an MP who was like a Brexiteer, um, who's a very nice guy, Owen Patterson. It was actually his, he was sort of the downfall of Boris Johnson because it was the original scandal, which Boris Johnson should have dealt with. And it, it was only like a, basically a year ago and everything started collapsing. So I had to read a lot about the EU because I was helping him write speeches for it. And the more I read about it, the more... I felt like this is so complicated. Um, like the problem people didn't like the EU is because it's so complicated and opaque and like it's all about like trade rules and it's really boring and it's like snoozy kind of stuff. And it's like it was like the Phantom Menace, uh, you know, Senate, mm. boring yeah. and filled with a lot of uh, unrelatable creeps, but with Belgians. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. And it's just, yeah, I mean, and you know, the Brussels is a massive like hotbed of like corruption. It's just a, it's a scam, and they they're all they're all making loads of money, and they just spend a lot of time 
again, you know, it's just massive amounts of freebies. But the more I read about it, uh, the more I sort of saw, well, actually, all the kind of Brexit arguments about how we can just go get by without this and without becoming really poor are just completely unfounded, really. So I kind of realized, well, actually, it, you know, what the Remainers are saying about it making us a lot poorer are definitely true. Because, you know, something like, you know, 50% of our exports go to continental Europe. Um, and, you know, if you, so if you bend, even if you bend up quite a small tariff on those kind of exports, that's, that's going to take a huge amount out of your economy. It's a huge hassle. For, so for that, you want basically, you know, something big in return. And I, I realized they just, and also at the time, the Brexiteers, basically, they're two completely d different visions that are completely contradictory. It's like a lot of, you know, revolutionary movements, you know, have different factions and they actually all hate each other and they have a completely different idea about what they want after the revolution. And they end up fighting a civil war afterwards. So, you know, so you had the kind of global, like global Britain faction who ended up basically getting their way and they ruled Britain. And then you had the sort of, kind of, you know, the more conservative, like, slow down globalization, who are basically motivated by immigration, primarily. Uh, and I remember the time thinking that those two kind of ideas are completely, like, you know, unworkable, as an idea. I mean, they're, you know, they're not gonna, um, I mean, like, oh, you know, the only sort of overlap between those two was probably the kind of, the kind of, fainer, the oldness, old Commonwealth idea, like the, the most popular idea in terms of immigration is to have free movement between Canada, Australia, and Britain, uh, and New Zealand. I don't know how popular it is in the other countries, but I mean, I mean, we could just do it unilaterally as far as I don't see why that would be a problem. Um, which is just, you know, anyone can move between the countries and work and live as long as they like. Maybe get health insurance, but I don't think anyone's really going to desperately want to use the NHS, so that doesn't really <laughs> concern me that much. <laughs> Um, so that, that was a very popular idea. That was pretty much the only popular idea that was popular amongst like the two factions of, of, um, of leave voters. But yeah, none, none of it's really kind of panned out as they, as they wanted, as happens in revolutions, isn't it? You know, it's never really what you want. Well, something that's, that's maybe a little bit related here, we wanted to ask you about the political life cycle of young people. So usually they start out with that sort of revolutionary left-wing ideas, uh, and then as they age, drifting, uh, you know, more towards a conservative outlook. But you've said recently that that's not what we're seeing anymore. Is that is that correct? Uh, yeah, it, it, it's definitely a big, like, a sort of choke point. People born around 75 to 1980, uh, that group aren't really getting more right-wing by any measurements. Uh, there's... They're, they're slightly move, voting Tory, but n not, not shifting in the way they used to. I mean, the biggest factors are... Uh, so parenthood is the biggest factor in how people turn right. Um, religion plays a big role as well. And obviously... But, I mean, religion's been in decline in Britain for a long, long time. But, um, yeah, in, in America as well. America, the decline in religion is a big, big factor in that. But, yeah, it's, it's kind of basically family formation. The number of... People who aren't getting married or getting married much later is like much bigger than it used to be, and that has an impact on, you know, how conservative they get. And again, that's kind of related a bit to house prices as well. It makes it really hard. But I think the whole culture is much more sort of single base, isn't it? And and kind and sing, and sort of single bells, but also kind of permanent adolescence. I mean, I'm not entirely sure my adolescence has even ended now, to be honest. I mean, I'm mid forties, but do you own a Star Wars T-shirt? Um, no, I, I haven't, I haven't, I kind of turned Good, against correct, Star Wars. Correct answer, you pass. <laughs> I turned against Star Wars, but I mean, I watched the Marvel films with my kids and even there's a lot of kind of like political vomit stuff thrown in, but, 
um, I kind of enjoy that. I could see that becoming mm. like a permit. Like the thing is, like the the whole st- like the collective thing. I've been like, there's no room to put all the Star Wars tat. Mm. I mean, like, I couldn't do that even if I was like, where am I going to put it in, in this like tiny little cramped flat in London? I mean, how do people do it? But yeah, there is. I mean, there are people who you know stay way into their forties just. Like a perma world. I mean, I suppose history is my escape. I, I just read about medieval kings, and that's the same thing as basically being stuck in Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, or whatever. Well, you know, both John and I, we've you know got 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 young kids ourselves, and I I feel like the best way to relive your childhood is by having children. But you know, we we are seeing more increasingly that people are not having kids, or they're having maybe one kid, and. You know, also, yeah, as you said, that housing affordability and perhaps there's cultural pressures as well, like to pursue a career ahead of maybe having a family. But you've also got sort of activist organizations like BLM advocating for the destruction of the nuclear family and trans ideology moving into primary schools, which which I think is a great way to rip a family apart. Uh, this sort of attack on family, is this a conscious attempt to destroy conservatism or is this some, something else at play? Is it too conspiratorial to think that way? I don't think it's conscious. I just think it's kind of, it's just vibes, isn't it? It's the general vibe of the, of the world. Um, and I don't, I don't think people think that deeply about things. I think people just respond to kind of incentives and to, you know, their own individual desires, but there is definitely that kind of, yeah, there is that trend. I mean, the trans thing is, is, uh, I've seen it. I mean, it's definitely a bit in secondary schools in London, and you know, all a lot of it's the same with um, with these green rooms. Um, you know, there is you know underneath the sort of stuff about the planet, there is a sort of like, oh, let's destroy the human race thing. Um, you know, let's have you know fewer children because there's no point bringing children into the world, which has become a kind of big thing. And I mean, I don't know how much that is to do with. I think it's one of those things. It starts off over something else. They're just anxious about something, but they kind of meme themselves into believing it. I mean, it's kind of weird because the population things like outside of Sub-Saharan Africa, the population has basically imploded everywhere. I mean, like, like, why would you, why would you worry about overpopulation? Like, fertility is like one point five in most countries. So it's just kind of, uh, I, I think that that is a kind of like cultish anxiety thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I concern, you know, conservatism. I think if you're gonna like in the future, if if, they, if people want to fight for its survival, it has to be a bit more like open about the nuclear family as a. And I say nuclear family as opposed to... So conservative politicians in, in Britain have talked about, you know, like they've sort of courting Asian voters. They've talked about, um, you know, family, the family values in the Asian community, which are very admirable, but it is particular, the nuclear family, you know, um, not the kind of multi-generational fam, the clan family that found in, in sort of um, Asian societies, which is the kind of basis of Western conservatism, because it's basically that it's a... It's a kind of between, it's between, it's kind of semi-individualism. So within the family, you have individualism, but you still have obligations towards other people. And, you know, you know itself is that once you become a father, you just can't, nothing's, you can't really think the same way. Because like everything, everything in your life and all your motives is all about protecting the interests of your children. And, uh, you know, that comes above everything else. And yeah, I think if, if a lot of men don't have that kind of, I wouldn't say burden, but that obligation, then that, then then they're not going to feel the same obligation to maybe conserve what that what we have and pass it on to the young, the next generation. And and instead, you know, the kind of bug man worldview of just like being obsessed with 
Marvel films and, and staying <laughs> as a child for and like seriously discussing what happens in like the Avengers or you know cool. Wakanda or whatever. It's just like this is this is childish stuff. Like I would say, it's a great reason to have kids. Is that you? I can actually go along to Marvel superhero films and you know otherwise I just people just presume I'm like a pedo or something. Or, or and I can actually enjoy this like a normal person. And I love toy shops. I think they're amazing. And I you know love like I love playing with toy cars and all that stuff. It's like. But that's why you have children. <laughs> like that's that's the excuse you need to do it. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think the, I think conservatism is going to be is going to struggle as long as you know fewer people have families. But you know, I don't know how you solve these problems. These are kind of cultural trends. So maybe conservatism needs a bit of a sort of a marketing makeover. You know, I was thinking maybe someone like Jordan Peterson is sort of making inroads there, you know, talking about men taking on more responsibility and, and, and yeah, cleaning your room and, and maybe leaving some of those childish things behind. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's all, you know, it comes down to St. Paul, right? So um, it's funny the Jordan Peterson thing because, you know, when I first, it's like, wow, uh, this guy really angers a lot of people, but he's angering them by saying, like, really kind of, to me, sort of blandly obvious stuff, you know, like really, this is like the ancient, this is like stuff your granny would have known, you know, it's not like... Mm, yes. It's not like 4D chess. It's just kind of really basic traditional knowledge. And it really angered a lot of people. It, it, you know, like, how dare you say women are more agreeable than men? It's like, obviously they are, <laughs> like, on average, you know, like, that's, everyone knows that. Um, yeah, but, I mean, Jordan Peterson gets, you know, a lot of hate from people. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of people took a, have taken a lot of, you know, glee in, in his misfortunes, which is, you know, sad to see. But I'm seeing him next month. Wonderful. Is in is in Australia then, or are you? Yeah, yeah. This is my second time. Oh, so great. yes, me and, me, me and my wife are going to go, and uh, yeah, and I like this version of Jordan as well. He's become really, he has become a bit of a supervillain, which is great. You know, what do you mean? He's got he's got his under underwater, he's got a volcano. <laughs> well, or something. No, like he's he's sort of like like it's something about his really produced videos, and he went through this period recently, like where he was like really really. Um, I don't know, sort of angry and, and everything. And so it was, I don't know, it was like he was leaning into something a bit. He's definitely got intense, more of an aggressive edge intense. to him. Yeah. But he did cry on Piers the other night. So there you go. Yeah, he's very intense. I'm, I, I'm, I'm much more lightweight than that. I could never be that intense, you know. It's all, it's all just a bit of a laugh. It's, like, <laughs> it's all a bit of a laugh. <laughs> a bit of a laugh, yes. Yes. Come on, mate. So, a bit of a laugh. <laughs> So, look, in your book, uh, you mention a man called Robert Conquest and his three laws. And uh, I can't stop thinking about this. So, in short, they are, one, everyone is conservative about what he knows best. Two, any organization not explicitly right-wing sooner or later becomes left-wing. And three, the simplest way to explain the behavior of any bureaucratic organization is to assume that it is controlled by a cabal of its enemies. Um, can you elaborate on these laws and how you see them applied to our current situation? Well, I should point out the the, the ownership of that law. It, I think his second law is probably better attributed to John O'Sullivan. I think I put a footnote in, in the paperback. Um, you know, John O'Sullivan, formerly in National View, who's now based in Hungary. I think he came out with uh, law number two. But generally, I think with Robert Conquest's law, everyone thinks, well, everyone's, they're pretty confident he came up with them, but no one's actually sure about the original like source of these so I think it was Robert Conquest. Um, I th so the one about organizations, that is the most obvious. Like you see any organization, um, and I think the classic ones were the Church of England and Amnesty International, you know, um, or you see it with loads of charities that basically started out 
uh, you know, started by sort of Catholic or sort of Protestant, you know, kind of old-fashioned conservative do-gooders, and then they end up, and now they just, like, tweet trans lives, trans women are women or something, and you see, like, <laughs> all that run by these social media account, by these, like, intolerable, annoying 12-year-olds. Zoomers. Who all have, you know, across-the-board progressive um, views. And, you know, so chari- charities are, like, in Britain, are, in most big charities are basically left-wing cam- campaign groups who partly because they take so much money from the taxpayer, just campaign for more money from the taxpayer and have, you know, very, I mean, you know, like some, some of the sort of hunger charities advocate without naming them, you know, especially the Christian ones advocate sort of basically forms of communism from what I can see, which are not going to make the world like less hungry. Like, you know, this system has never really worked before. Um, and I just think that's, I guess the the environment of many companies it's just it's much more antisocial to sort of go the other way to become conservative and i i don't know i mean maybe it's just the kind of natural cultural trends that we live in that an organization inevitably i mean i, th- would you, I think maybe would you would you count oxbridge as in the same sort of thing like 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 cambridge and oxford would you would you are they going the same sort of thing yeah, I think there's definitely a thing. I mean, you know, Cambridge tried to, you know, stop Peterson, didn't they? Um, I, I think a lot of the, you know, the administration in a lot of universities tend to be, yeah, I mean, across the board, left wing. I mean, you know, universities. So universities have always had a slightly more left of centre um, feel because just academics tend to be uh, traditionally on the left. Um, but from what I can see, the data in Britain and the States, it was about three to one in the 60s. So, you know, most... The majority of academics would be Democrats, but now you know that ratio. Is some it, it depends on the area. Sometimes twenty to one or hundred to one in some areas. Um, I think it's anthropology. They couldn't find a single Republican voter amongst any faculty in any major university in America. Um, so it's not even anything to one. It's just infinity leftism, and and I think um, the study show the the administrators as well. The people who are basically in charge of um, who comes in are even more biased. I think there's, you know, something like 94% Democrat voting. Uh, and a lot of universities support um, things like making diversity statements, which are kind of basically political oaths, because, you know, I mean, if you're, I mean I'm mean, i conservative, I don't believe in diversity. I mean, I, I don't necessarily believe it's a bad thing in all cases, but I don't think it's a good thing in itself. So that's a, basically a political statement they're asking to make. I think in this, so I think it amongst, like, for example, the kind of wealthy donors who still fund these kind of groups, and even in American universities, they're still quite conservative. They tend to be older, kind of rich white men. Um, but they're being kind of, it's, it's a, just a generational thing. They're basically being eased out. And, and the younger ones are. And, and I think in the States, the more elite a university is, the, the stricter it is. Basically, the more extreme it is on free speech and stuff like that, like the more overtly left-wing it is. Um, remember that when Charles Murray was shouted at by these horrible kids in uh, is it Middlebury College. And, you know, if you look at the... Because Britain's so like poor these days, when you look at how rich Americans are and how rich Democrat voting, you know, elites in America are, they're just so fantastically wealthy compared to us. It's like unbelievably, and the amount they spent on they spend on you know university is just baffling. And that was an incredibly elite university. I mean, the people who went there would be in the top zero point zero one percent of the British population, and you know they just couldn't bear to listen to this guy come along because you know he'd written the bell curve twenty five years ago. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all universities have all basically, but I think, you know, there's, 
once the process starts, you're, you're more likely to hire someone who's sort of like a good fit, which is often like used in, I mean, that is one, so discrimination, um, you know, if you get like in jobs, of racial discrimination or whatever, obviously that does happen because people are just more likely to employ someone who they feel comfortable with and if they're from the similar backgrounds. But that also applies to politics as well. So, you know, since about the 90s, basically all conservatives are basically being squeezed out of areas like academia, um, charity as well. But again, I think uh, a lot of this is down to sort of basically preference as well. So, you know, like people who tend to be Tories tend to be more motivated by money. And I think a lot of these kind of professions just don't pay enough. If, you know, if you want to be like a wealthy person in, in a big city, then you need to do, you know, go into finance or something. Can I get you to talk about the role of language in this? You, you mentioned um, in the book that uh, a conservative friend in, a so- in social work said that everything in his workplace is, quote, so heavily expressed in the language of the left that after a while it, beca- it, it became almost impossible to even articulate the problems he saw in people's lives without using progressive language and therefore accepting progressive beliefs, close quote. Reading this may, um, sort of made me feel like uh, we're, we're all living in Rosemary's Baby, you know, like the way that they use this, this language, you're sort of constantly being gaslit <laughs> in a way until you have to accept that you've you've given birth to satan so um uh what what, do you, what, what can you talk us through this uh this idea of language i mean this is i, I was reading the other day about the, the the sort of obstacles like basically this kind of american ideology that's kind of you know he's spreading across the world um this you know, progressivism, whatever you want to call it, you call it wokeism, it's kind of based on a certain set of beliefs. And the the worse that a country is, a developed country is at understanding English, the less proficiency they have in English, the more insulated they are against it. So obviously Britain gets it the worst, and Australia and Canada, um, and then places like Holland are also very badly affected, Germany as well. The French are a bit more protected, but Japan and South Korea it's had the least impact there because most people don't really understand English. And you wouldn't, even if they understand English, they wouldn't understand the kind of subtleties of, of language in the same way that a, a sort of very good speaker would. In a way, like the Dutch can like make puns in English and stuff because they know it so well. Um, and a sort of a lot of progressive political dominance comes from very kind of very subtle reframing of language. Um, so the, the basic progressive, I suppose the basic progressive worldview is that uh, you know, all, all sort of relationships in society are are basically oppressive in the same way the the worker and the boss relationship is. Um, you know, some people call this sort of cultural Marxism, but I mean, I don't use the term just because it's kind of a bit, it's a bit low status and a bit wacky. And it's just, even though it's probably uh, an accurate one, it's kind of used by too many nut jobs. Um, and but it does kind of frame it in the same way that Marx looked at those relationships. So it's all exploitative. So, you know, women are exploited by men, non-white people are exploited by white people. Um, sexual minorities are inherently good, um, which should be celebrated and blah, blah, blah. Um, and if you can kind of subtly frame the language in that kind of language of oppression, as happens in social work a lot, rather than the language of um, a sort of more... Instead of a language in which it gives more agency to, to individuals, which is how conservatives see the world, then it's much easier to get progressive view worlds. You know, so for example, the, you know, the classic um, the way people in in the criminal justice system often talk about um, 
their, their clients being sort of vulnerable or victims of society when, you know, we're talking like when most people say they're, well, they're criminals. I mean, um, you know, they've, they've chosen for whatever reason, maybe not because they're necessarily bad, but just because they're weak or like stupid, they've chosen to commit crimes. So they're criminals. Um, well, a lot of people in the criminal justice system would frame them as kind of, you know, they're white hats in, in the kind of white hat, black hat um, world. They're sort of victims of society because they're from underprivileged, disadvantaged backgrounds. And, and social work is is um, very much framed in that because sociology, the whole sort of profession is framed in that way. And, and similar to criminology, which, which sort of essentially sees criminals most of the time as... Um, as either victims or or some or sort of actually part of the vanguard of the revolution, um, and so if you if you I mean you see the way the uh, if you look at the news reports of BBC for example about how um, these Albanian mostly Albanian guys arriving in London it's entirely framed in the way of them as kind of, as victims as vulnerable as like we must care for these people, and I say well not to point but they're also met, you know healthy young men who have arrived illegally in our country and, and are breaking the law. But could could I also change the Overton window on that by by change? You can change over windows. Like the window, there is no window here. There's literally. What if I called them dreamers? Dreamers, yeah, dreamers is a great one. Well, actually, if you look at because uh, I looked at I did a report and I had to look into the BBC language, the, the language of the BBC, which has obviously changed. So obviously, illegal immigrant stopped being used a long time ago. But except when they when when the BBC news probably changed now. Um, discussed illegal immigration in, in Asia, so someone they would still it would still be illegal immigration. So uh, a Bangladeshi arriving in India, or um, I guess a Chinese person in Vietnam or something, whatever, um, that would say illegal immigration. But it, none, nowhere in North America news would they ever use the phrase illegal immigration. It was always undocumented migrant, um, and of course that makes a big difference to to how you frame an argument. If someone is illegal immigrant, or I mean that's just. There has to be some mechanism where conservatives can say, "Listen, you cannot report the news that way because, like, you're not you're not being like crudely biased. You're not being like a Fox News report, but you're you're much more effective because your bias is very very subtle." Um, you know, Dreamers is obviously like part of the very like schmaltzy, you know, kind of idealization of anyone who sort of migrates. It's like, oh, well, as a dreamer, so like, well, yeah, he might be a, he might be a surgeon as we were promised with all these Syrians, but he might just be like a random like, schizo kind of desperado who's going to commit crime in my town <laughs> i think i've got a right to know who's coming he's turning up in my village it's like it's a basic kind of human right um yeah so that you know language is such a, a big part of the thing um and i started working on this ages ago this i want to make an entire dictionary of the of the new language but i mean i've got to like so many words now and, and they're always and it's kind of like a very fresh that it's very creative. Like, you know, so even this year, I've heard so many, what was one, like, minoritized is a great one. I think Justin Trudeau used it. It's like, what does that mean, minoritized? Oh, well, you should listen to him. He's, he's, the, he's the primary mm. source on all that. He's, he's, uh, he's a genius. He's a brilliant man in many ways. I mean, amusing. Um, was, and, you know, gender reaffirming. I mean, I, you know, that, that's image. I heard one the other day. Here's one for you. Put this on in your book. Um, this comes from... Uh, a someone I know who is in TV and they're working on a TV show with a trans character and uh, you know in the room one of the consultants said when someone said gender dysphoria they said uh, gender euphoria gender euphoria wonderful so that's that's they say when I experience gender euphoria now it's a term that's not in the DSMR I think it's been created 
on the spot by this person. So, <laughs> I mean, gen- I mean, like when when you saw the you know General Levine, the American general, uh, giving that speech where he's sort of dressed up as a woman and he's talking about giving you know gender reaffirming treatment to children. I mean, gender reaffirming is you know ama- amazing euphemism and. and well, I mean, watching that, it's hard not to think maybe the Ayatollahs have a point about America being evil. I mean, that's just it just looks so dystopianly evil. This kind of man dressed in a dress saying, you know, the children should be encouraged to have basically irreversible, as far as, you know, it might be irreversible, let's just put it that way, um, surgery, because, you know, reaffirm their gender. It's like, that's just, that's so mad to, to so brazenly um, alter the language in such a way. But you know, it's such a key point to it. I mean, I do think there's, it's why I think, the, you know, the global spread of English is is really kind of a bad thing overall. Um, I mean, but I mean, what else could there be? There's always going to be a global language, wasn't there? I mean, it could, better than English and French, isn't it? I mean, uh, I mean, imagine if the French had conquered America and, you know, the entire United States was French run <laughs> and French speaking. I mean, it would probably be worse, wouldn't it, really? Just so many, like the whole continent for all their terrible political ideas, just like, you know, well, we're, we're the serfs of the world, so I don't have the same beef with the French that, that the Brits do. I, I, you know, we, we, we sort of, we're, we're at the bottom of the totem pole. So. <laughs> oh, no, I love the French. I, I, I definitely admire them, and I think they are actually going to be the saviors of Europe in many ways. But, um, yeah, I mean, they're gonna, they're, they are standing out against, they are standing up against, against this kind of like the, the insanity coming out of the States. But they sort of started is, it a bit. Well, bit, their idea. A little bit. Yeah, of I mean, it. French intellectuals were a big French and German intellectuals. Yeah, basically went to America, just found a much bigger audience, and also just a much like a much more narcissistic culture, uh, and like a much bigger supply of like basically spoiled baby students who can, um, you know, who who can basically be their audience. Uh, you know, so it's just and also in a, a culture which is much more competitive. So there's a kind of this, this base desire to be as more progressive than anyone else around you, which is, you know, I think competition's a key point of this whole thing. I mean, that's what drives it to, like, even more extremes. I mean, I don't think liberalism itself is a bad thing. It's just if it continually gets more and more liberal all the time, then obviously it's going to go insane. Yeah. Is is there a counter to the language game, or is, is that war already already won? I don't know. You just have to... It takes someone who's, like, uh, who's a bit ballsy, because if, if you don't use... The language you just really stand out don't you so eventually conservatives always end up using it i mean like w- one thing i'm i'm doing i'm going to do in my substack and i'm going to fight against the world is <clears throat> the small thing is is you know renaming foreign cities to give you know to, to stop to stop using their british name again you know which is just i wrote about it earlier this year like kiev i'm not calling it kiev so i support the ukrainians i hope they win blah blah but it's called it's kiev i'm not calling it kiev um and the you know there's I, I'm not giving. I'm not. I, I, I'm going against Beijing. I'm sorry. I'm not having it anymore. Uh, Peking is. I'm going to revert to that. So I'm just. And you know. Well, they deserve Mumbai, everything sorry, they get. <laughs> right, so, sorry. I'm not going to like take lectures on colonies from the Chinese. Come on, science. No way. Um, so you just have to, just basically, you know, fight every single, every every single euphemism. You know, it's like. <laughs> Uh, someone I know was was you know writing a school newsletter and it's all the small things and asked me oh yeah do you so do I cap up black so well if you don't cap up black you're basically that looks like you're racist basically so you know what are you gonna do 
I say when I say well, you know, don't care about black because it's just stupid. <laughs> like, don't mm. change, don't change the just because Merriam-Webster, which is like run by some, you know, and you know, these dictionaries in America tell you that's how the English language meets. It's our language. I'm not going to let you, you know, tell us how we use it. So you know, you have to maybe just fight it a little bit. Well, we've got a, we've got a few more questions if we can race through them. Uh, I have another quote from your. I have another quote from your book here. Quote. While British arts folk loved to break taboos, the highest praise uh, they only like to break the taboos of 50 years ago. They're not the sort of ones that today will uh, actually lose you friends. So um, uh, as people interested in the arts, this quote really hit home. There's something, there's this uh, meta-narrative in the arts today that, they, that they're sort of brave rev- revolutionaries sticking it to the man or fighting back against orthodoxies of, of a group of like fascist right-wing elites. Uh, I'm certain everyone from Taylor Swift to Stephen King thinks this way. Um, but you sort of point out that this, this narrative isn't quite accurate now. Oh, it's not accurate at all. I mean, I mean, they probably not been sticking it to a man in like 1968 or something when censorship was in the theatre was abolished. But no, nothing in, I mean, like nothing in the arts or nothing in, in theatre almost nothing in any kind of part of the arts world is at all actually subversive in any way whatsoever. Like, none of them will ever say anything that's actually remotely controversial or interesting. You know, when there was a time, was it about eight or nine years ago, in the West End, there were, like, four different plays about Jim Crow and segregation in the old South of America. And the first thing, I was like, this is not America. It's just weird how we got obsession. It's like, you're, like, wow, that's really brave. You're saying segregation is bad. That's, that's really cutting, like, really cutting edge in 2013 in London. It's like, why don't you say something that's actually, you know, like vaguely controversial, vaguely, you know, like the, the word is called sometimes to use subversive. So, you know, kind of the modern elites love the idea of being subversive, uh, of being rebellious, as you say, um, you know, going against the man. But they really don't. I mean, like, you know, the BLM protest, there was a, the, the Star Wars actor, I can't remember his name now. And he was at the beginning of it. He said, I, you know, I don't, he actually said, I don't care if this loses me jobs or loses me work. Or, you know, get in trouble in Hollywood. I support BLM. Say, how is it going to lose your work exactly? It's like supported by literally every single corporation in the entire America. Every single institution was supporting this rebellion. Like, Mm. you would not find us. The only one that opposed it was the president. Um, And, like, the police. And, like, literally theatres were all tweeting out how much they supported it. Every corporation, everybody. And the same thing in Britain. You know, it was the first corporate-backed riots in in history um you know so i don't think of that that is not to me that is just those are like the, the young like protesters the the the, the pro regime protesters in somewhere like iran or something we see every year not the ones fights now i mean the ones who go up every year like you know death to israel you're that you're not you might be revolutionary once but you're, you're just basically supporting the regime that you know they're, they're no more rebellious than like the tired old communists you see with their kidney dialysis machines in the in the politburo in the 80s like you've won the revolution, um, and so you still see this. There's kind of I call it like the, the straw ghosts thing because you know they're fighting a straw man. It was once a real thing, but now you know th- these people haven't been in control for ages. So you know the current thing is in Britain, like oh, a couple of books came out in like in the last couple of years saying wow we're gonna we're putting the controversial idea that the British Empire was actually bad. You know this is not the stuff you were taught at school. It's like no one on the age of seventy didn't have a teacher who wasn't like really left-wing like I, I didn't no one my age would have been taught the british empire is a good thing like it's just 
what, who are you arguing with? You're arguing with someone who's like 120 years old. But even in Carry On Up the Khyber, they say the British Empire is no good. It's like even, yeah, exactly. So in the 50s and 60s, it's kind of this, you're laughing at, you know, you're laughing at the old, the old order. And the reason there was like a satire boom and, you know, great comedy, um, you know, in the 60s onwards, till I basically, I put it at the end of the century, um, was because you had an old order, which was actually quite relaxed about making fun of, you could like satirize the old moral order, the old political order, the old institutions. You could never, you can't satirize the new order in the same way. You can't, you can have a comedy that actually made fun of. But it's so funny that it's this untapped resource that the, 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 this, the, the repression and the weird, the woke weird religion is so funny. It's it's hilarious. I mean, but it's, it, um, like, it's hilarious, but it's in control. It's powerful. I mean, like, you know, you're not, there's not going to be a satire about, about <laughs> sort of like men dressing up as women, you know, for example, um, there's not going to be a satire about, there would never be a comedy about BLM, about the, the absurdities. You know, BLM's had so many people being done now for stealing money, saying I'm raising money for BLM and just wandering off because it's a scam. Well, there, there, there used to be that amazing skit on Little Britain, I'm a lady. Right, it's okay, like yeah. That, so <laughs> that, that was ahead of its time. Like that, if that came out <laughs> now, <laughs> like that, that would be a total. I mean, Little Britain is a good example. Lots of comedies which are very like gross out and in the noughties were, were completely unpermissible now. Um, and they would be, you know, they would be unpermissible before the 70s and they would be unpermissible now because kind of this new moral kind of order is as reformed but those guys have had to de- just like everyone else have had to denounce the work they have They've had yeah. to go through a struggle session and denounce the work and say oh it's terrible we we, we didn't know i mean uh, maybe it's genuine what i find it really strange is that sometimes you get like a middle-aged it's all you know a middle-aged white guy who's like an author or poet or professor and he has this kind of self-flagellating thing where you know i apologize for my behavior because i've been insensitive and he's done basically nothing as far as i can see he's literally just beating himself up in public and i just think they do they basically have something on you? Do they? They must have dirt on you, right? Or like maybe your pension? Maybe they're saying when you're going to get a pension, they're like. But the the pressing truth is that a lot of people like this kind of self-flagellation. They want to like beat themselves up in public and say what terrible race. I I find that completely incomprehensible. Why would you humiliate yourself like that? Like have some dignity. But lots of people just love it. They want they want to they want to go through with that kind of you know. I'm so sorry. I want everyone to want everyone to like me. Mm. It's bizarre. I mean, you know, like basically. The the new the new order is basically much more sensitive about jokes than the old one, so that's why I don't joke. Even though there's just there is you know a huge huge wealth of stuff out there. There were writers on Saturday Night Live the other night who literally, well, I think they walked off some of them, like they wouldn't go into work when Dave Chappelle, you know, did his guest hosting. Where I know America is a very specific case, but still, that's a comedy show, and and comedians who write on the show behind the scenes like publicly made a thing and said we're not coming into work and that. Like that's that's crazy. If that happened in the eighties, I feel like that'd be open and shut. They'd be like, okay, well you're not you're fired. Like Yeah. It's very weird, isn't it? Um and yet, you know, if they made I don't know, if, if a comedian made jokes about the sort of old you know, I mean you can make jokes about religion as much as you want, for example, the old order. Mm. Something that would be an edgy. Yeah. Uh, you know, when Dave Allen, you know, he made jokes, he's you know in Ireland, it was it was edgy to make fun of the church. You'd getting you'd lose friends, you'd lose it would make your life difficult if you made because they were powerful guys. Mm. Um, and what I find is strange, you know, people who 
think it's kind of comedians who think it's like really edgy to swear and at the same time just would never touch anything remotely and wouldn't even work with anyone who did anything remotely edgy so wow you're prepared to upset 70 year old grannies with your language but you know you're not going to upset the people who are going to get you sacked or make your life difficult uh, you know i think it's if, if you don't want your comedy to be challenging and difficult then just stick to non-political you know family comedy or whatever which is fine mm. there's that, not everything has to be in politics but it's the combination of trying to be transgressive and edgy and, and actually just repeating like the most fashionable, obvious comments. Yeah. Well, b- by and large, we've seen that conservatism, it, it doesn't really have a substantial interest in art or artists. When you see what gets funded, and this makes sense, it's usually something gross about putting something in your butt. And I know yeah, yeah. I know there are some conservatives like yourself with an interest in art and literature or even pop culture for that matter. Why don't conservatives care much about art? Well, I think the arts the arts always gonna be slightly liberal because I mean I think mentioned in the book, but you know, openness, the trait openness is, is more commonly found found amongst liberals. Um uh, it's the same reason liberalism mildly correlates with mental illness, because it's just you know, it's the two sides, it's that kind of personality is more open to but, you know, if you look at some of the, you know, the great arts, the canon, is, is, lots of it is very conservative, even reactionary. I don't know if that's a kind of survivorship bias or um, or what exactly. But I think, you know, we, we basically need a billionaire who's going to fund, firstly, um, arts, I mean, figurative arts in the oldest sense, and um, and kind of artistic productions. Because you just can't, like, you can't trust things like the Arts Council in Britain. If you gave them loads of money, it'd all be basically... It would be like reimagining Henry V, but with George Floyd or something. You just, I just know exactly what they're doing. But it's so rubbish. <laughs> what a rubbish production that would be. Like Royal Shakespeare Company is like, oh, we're doing a trans Joan of Arc. It's, like, it's just so obvious. Like, it's so obvious. Um, so you need a you need a basically a billionaire conservative who's going to say, I'm going to set up, you know, I'm going to set up a theatre productions. I'm going to set up opera. I'm going to set up you know, train music. It doesn't even have to be right wing because I think that can be a bit cringy. Just something that's not left wing. Something that's not obviously progressive. Um, and I think that's what happened in the past. You'd have patrons who sort of fund these things. A lot of these things just aren't going to fund themselves. So if you're, you know, if you have an attachment to the free market, then you're not going to really, I don't think you're going to produce that kind of arts. You know, uh, if we just, you know, unfortunately, some if you left it to the free market, we're just going to get like Love Island or something. Because that that's what pays money, isn't it? That's, sadly, mm. um, yeah. So we just need a billionaire. Do you know any billionaires? I I, I don't, but I know some stuff. There's types of stories that we we miss. Uh, we, we we miss. You know, we like all sorts of cinema and art and stuff like that. But we've got a bit of a soft spot for sort of right wing story, fascist stories like Death Wish and Magnum Force and RoboCop and you know all smash hits, by the way. And RoboCop's criminals are great. Well, criminals punished uh, for attacking the family unit, cops doing their jobs, not offering cups of tea to eco-terrorists. Uh, yeah. You know, what does, it, what does it mean that we don't see these stories in the mainstream these days? I just think, well, I don't know, people who work in... I mean, there are people who work in the arts and, you know, even in things like documentary making who, who say that... For example, when you make a documentary, I know it's, in this, this is non-fiction, but um, just say you want to make a historical documentary, and the first thing they ask you is, okay, so what's the diversity aspect? Say, well, it's not because it's a documentary about, like, medieval Scotland or something. It's like, there's, well, you you can't, we're not going to make it unless there's a diversity aspect. So, basically, everything has to, has to go, pretty much everything has to go through 
political hoops first. And, and you know, they framed it so that their their political bugbears aren't even just politics. They're just sort of good manners, which is always thinking, oh, it's just decency and good manners. It's just, we're just reflecting the audience. It's like, well, up to a point, but you're also like giving a political agenda this whole thing. Um, I, you know, I, with the Marvel thing, so that's sort of interesting because even the free market produces stuff which looks progressive. So we can't even say, like with Marvel, we can't even say, oh, that's just, you know, that's like the Arts Council, that's like left-wingers who control the state, like in, imposing them. That's basically, I guess, what the public want. So, you know, they're paying for that. So, I mean, I do think amongst, you know, like the, the younger generation coming up, they actually want stuff that's progressive. So by that stage, you know, there but was not up, much... we're, Look, we used to watch, yeah, just like Predator and In the Line of Fire and... You know, yeah, all these all these sort of stories that were, you know, Die Hard with a Vengeance or something like you know, this is all the action stuff I'm saying, obviously, but but uh, but still, it was um, I wasn't drawn to the to such oh, I hate to say it such candy ass stuff when I was a, a young man. What do you mean candy ass? What's what's the example? Of can- I mean, I don't know the Marvel stuff. Like 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 this is this is um, it's uh, uh you know, it's basically. The characters are in stasis. They can't. They can't change. They can't. There, there's limits to. The, I mean, Alan Alan Moore's talked about this. Uh, your great countryman. Uh, he's talked about comic book movies crouching on the uh, possessively on the cultural stage when when really in actuality their stories are far more limited than 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 they're letting on. They might be about flying people, but they're really very literal. Even. Uh, like two examples, like like Die Hard with a Vengeance and Dirty Dancing, both films that I watched a lot. Um, both of them are not very progressive, not really. You know. You know, I've never seen Dirty Dancing. Never well, seen it. It's a lovely film. It's great. Actress Swayze, right? Yeah, and it's um, it's um, yeah, it's wonderful. It's romantic. As a child, I think as a teenager, I just thought it looks like a woman's film, and you know, I'm obviously sexually threatened by his dancing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not yes. doing that. All of the, I had I had sisters though, so I was sort of you know. Oh uh, yeah, so I didn't. I, that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. Yeah, that's <laughs> well, Ed, you've been so generous with your time today. Uh, we we have a final question that we ask all our guests, and that is, we'd like to know what you're reading right now. Well, I, I'm one of those people who end up reading lots of books at the same time. So I start one, and then I just go into another one. It's quite a bad habit. Um, I've actually been reading a book just finishing um, Anthony Beaver's Russian Civil War book, which I started reading on holiday in the summer, but it's so depressing that I had to put it down. Um, and I liked Anthony, and I found, you know, I've read this Berlin and Stalingrad, and that was pretty depressing, but this is just something else. And um, I don't know, I've been reading a lot about Russia, you know, since the start of the year, because it's been news, and I mean, fascinating place. I don't have seen the Adam Curtis documentary on BBC, but six-parter, looks at the fall of communism, just extraordinary suffering. But anyway, so during this civil war, both sides are just fantastically evil. So it's very, it's very hard to sort of, I don't know, it's hard, very hard to find any kind of optimism because, you know, the Russian anti-communists were just unbelievably brutal. And, and you know, had they come to power, they probably, they may have been actually worse than Stalin. Who knows? It could have actually been worse. So there's that. But, you know, they all had an unhappy ending. I mean, I haven't got to the end there, but I know it's unhappy. The communists win, so. <laughs> it's a bummer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I read the Spanish Civil War earlier this year, which is like, I think it was his first book. Again, both sides, really, really horrendous. Um, and I guess it shows that, well, in most of these things, you know, in Spain, the the right, I mean, both sides, both 
conflicts the right were very brutal and kind of more vicious than the left. Um, but in Spain, they had the support of the the kind of peasants were still had great respect for their priests and for the church, and they were still very religious. Uh, well, what happened in Russia before the revolution is a huge drop in religious observance. People were very much turned against the priests long before the communists came along. Um, one of many areas where modern Russia has slight parallels with the modern United States as well, actually. Um, so that's um, a cheery note on which to end. Thanks for those recommendations. <laughs> you can watch Dirty Dancing, I think, too. Uh, it'll pick me up, perhaps. Uh, but um, but thanks again so much, uh, uh, Ed. Uh, now, where can people find your work online? Um, go, it's, search Wrong Side of History Substack. I don't actually know what the the actual URL is, but yeah, just Ed West Substack. You should be able to find it. Um, yeah, that's where all my stuff is now. So, And I want and everyone to read uh, Tory Boy, his book, uh, Get It However You Can. It's uh, it's hilarious, and not enough people say that. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure, John and Ricky. Thanks so much, Ed. And uh, do do come back. We want to check in with you next year. Is that okay? Yeah, anytime. Maybe, hopefully, maybe I'll be able to travel Australia. Are people allowed to go to Australia now? Yes, you can. You're yeah. welcome. Yeah, we well, I mean you. Obviously, you're, and, uh, if you're in England, just you know, just swim over. No one's going to stop you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> good. Very good. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.